Welcome to Female Inner Power, the podcast for women who don't want to choose between work success and life happiness. I'm your host, Nomi Melkyonatan, leadership coach and courage catalyst. Each week, I will share a refreshingly honest conversation about how to trust your intuition, lead from female power in male-dominated spaces, and inspire you to be a more confident force for good in the world. Are you ready? Welcome, welcome to another episode of Female Inner Power. Today's conversation is with Nicola Payne, executive coach and former European HR director. I first met Nicola when we were in the same mastermind in 2017, two coaches trying to figure out actually how do we do the marketing side of our business? How do we build business models and do some of those things? And we've just had so much fun, so many things that have resonated over the years. Whereas I started my coaching career very early and therefore my corporate stint is very short. Nicola has an extensive experience in navigating office politics and pay rises and all the things that comes with leading massive HR departments, massive teams in organizations. I really appreciate this conversation because Nicola has a beautiful blend of what I think of as the feminine and the masculine. So she's both bringing the warmth, incredibly clear ethics and morals, but also a very practical approach to how do you navigate office politics? And she talks about you know, pay rises and the power of three and what she always had in mind when she went into negotiating and how she got different things. She talks about not just saying yes to things, but making sure it's a win-win. So her business is called People Savvy and Nicola is definitely savvy in the approaches she learned along the way. It wasn't something that just you know <laughs> she was born with she learned many many things but her natural curiosity and her appetite for how can I learn how can I grow how can I make things happen have obviously stood her in good stead but really listen because politics is politics and pay rises and how to fire people those are three topics that I find again and again when I sit with clients we struggle with and women go, yikes, like, I don't know if I want to continue working here, if this is how it needs to be done. And I love how Nicola got practical about some of these things. And also she says, you know, good people have a moral obligation to involve themselves in politics so they can influence for the greater good. And I couldn't agree with this more. It is so incredibly important that we don't opt out just because it's not happening the way we want it to be doesn't mean we should opt out because how else are we going to change the systems? So I hope you will enjoy this conversation, listening to Nicola's story, but also the practical advice she gives about what's been working for her and what she's been using with her clients. So let's take a breath. And dive in. Welcome, welcome to the Female Inner Power podcast. I am so looking forward to this conversation, Nicolette, because I've known you for oh, five years, six years. Anyway, yeah. post your corporate life. And I know snippets. I think probably early on I was curious, nosy, asking lots of questions. 
Um, and I'm not sure my memory serves me accurately. What I do know is you were very successful. You were very good at figuring out how to navigate the corporate life and get pay rises and doing lots of things that lots of women struggle with um, navigating the politics. So I'm really looking forward to diving in and um, and uh, yeah, getting to go deeper with you. And I'm wondering whether you can just start by sharing, because again, my memory might serve me wrong, a little whistle step tour through your career, because what, from what I remember, you started in retail and then you were promoted very quickly at a young age, you ended up with a lot of responsibility. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's so funny, and it's and it's brilliant to be here um, doing this, and it's you know it is literally like talking with a friend, which I absolutely love. So, um, and and I don't think we've we've sort of done that whole what was your story sort of bit. So um, you'll maybe hear it today for the first time. Um, I guess you know I did start in retail, and actually, you might be surprised to know I started my career in retail at age twelve. Um, twelve. So <laughs> child labour and all that. Um, no, I got my first Saturday job when I was 12 um, in a fruit and veg shop. Um, and I got my first promotion when I was 13 to the butcher's counter, which I was very excited about because it meant I got an extra 20p an hour, um, which was um, amazing. And, you know, I worked in shops all the way through, you know, school and through university. I can come back and tell you, I think I even wrote a blog once on what I learned from the butcher's shop. You know, um, it was fascinating um, to look back on. But um, I, when I left uni, I remember I wanted to move into um, HR and I remember applying for all of these HR roles, not getting them. I remember being terrified, um, you know, in interviews and um, I didn't really know what it was. I just liked people and thought, hey, I'll go and do something with people. Um, and then I thought, well, actually, what am I really good at and what have I done for years? And it was actually that retail side. So I applied for retail schemes. Um, got onto the ASDA graduate scheme. Um, and to be honest, I give complete credit to ASDA because they were absolutely amazing at giving people really early responsibility. And they threw you in. It was very much sink or swim. You got some initial training and then thrown in. Um, I remember them saying, you know, you'll probably get a really nice, you know, small department in a store somewhere, you know, 25 grand a week sort of turnover, um, you know, small, nice, nice sort of store to go in at. And they, and that wasn't it. That wasn't my experience at all. I got like a 500 grand a week's, um, you know, department, 80 people to manage. I was a deputy, but because it was a 24 seven store, it was really loads of responsibility from day one. So I just was so green. It was, you know, embarrassingly green um, going in as a first appointment, but you know, I loved it. I really, really loved it. And I learned so, so much. Um, and, and ASA was brilliant for moving people around and giving graduates that early responsibility, early insight. We got loads of, um, you know, exposure to the exec board at that point because it was the first year they'd done a graduate scheme. And so full credit to them. I can tell you more about my ASDA days um, if you're interested. Um you were going to say well, yeah no I was just um <laughs> so for also for anyone international or who's not in the UK so as there's a big supermarket chain and it's funny isn't it because it's not a sexy thing yeah to, to join supermarkets but it sounds like that the experience of being so hands-on because it's a fast-moving business it's not a boring day I'm sure in a in a in a supermarket 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I remember being a little bit, you know, because I, I did an accountancy degree and I, I'd always, because I liked maths, I was quite simplistic, I think, in my early in my early years. I liked maths. I was going to go and be an accountant. I liked people. I wanted to go into HR. But um, it was, um, I remember being a little bit embarrassed, I think, you know, when I was sort of thinking about going on to retail management scheme, because it really wasn't the sexy end of graduate recruitment, um, you know, even then. But I tell you what, now, whenever I see a CV with somebody that's worked in retail, and I saw quite a few, you know, in my sort of over my career, I would hire them in a minute, you know, obviously subject to interview and and, and good fit and all that sort of stuff. But I would hire them in a minute because they get such a good grounding, such a lot of autonomy, such a lot of sink or swim having to be resilient and and, and think in the moment. Um, and they get a really good sense of customer service as well. So, you know, I'd hire them in a minute. So anyone working in retail, Karen? That's really funny as a parent, because when we talk about what experience we want our kids to have, and my kids are way too young to need to go yeah. look for jobs yet. But I've always thought, you know, like I remember some of my, my friends when I first moved to London, and they worked in Starbucks, and they very quickly became assistant managers or things like that. And I thought that was great. And, and we have a conversation about here, is that a waste of time? I said not. And I think that early responsibility is, is very important. So you, you had like, like 80 people that you were deputizing for. I don't even know what that means. I mean, yeah. Um, so, so literally there was me, I was age 22, um, green as anything. And I, you know, I was, I was a complete walkover as a manager in that first appointment. You know, I was completely soft as anything, you know, but I was accountable for making sure people were in the right place. They were filling the shelves. They were, you know, turning up. And if they weren't turning up and I'd be, you know, responsible for managing absence, I was responsible for, you know, on the odd occasion, having to discipline people, having to dismiss people. I remember sitting there doing that with my very first, you know, having everything written down, everything scripted, you know, exactly what I was going to say, being, you know, I was shaking more than they were, I think, um, you know, the very first time you had to do that. Um, and so responsible for everything, responsible for customer service, responsible for then actually the technical side of the job, the ordering, the, you know, availability, the 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 waste, you had to be quite numerate and um, responsive. It's fast moving as retail. Um, you know, to some respects, you you don't get a lot of things are set from head office. Um, so you don't get lots of um, choice about um, what you do, but how you do it is very much down to you, um, I think, in stores. And that's really what I learned um, in those early days, um, certainly at Asda. Um, you know, when I moved from doing... Um, you know, a grocery manager in store, I then did fresh food. And then I, and probably after I'd been there about 18 months, I was actually doing milk round recruitment. I was in charge of the milk round recruitment for the new graduates coming in. Um, and the yes, second mil- year of the graduate milk scheme. Round. Oh yes. This was <laughs> probably, oh, I don't even know if they call it that anymore. You know, it used to be expression. when organizations would go around the universities um, and literally do the first stage recruitment, they normally do first stage recruitment. They do recruitment fairs on site. They do a lot of first round interviews, all of those sorts of things. And we would decide who would then go forward, you know, into the next phase of the graduate recruitment round. So there was me, age 23, running that for for ASDA, you know, um, wow. nationwide. Um, you know, <laughs> it was sort of, you know, just going, okay, how did I get here? You know, I, it was only two years ago. I was, you know, with you guys in the, you know, in the union bar, you know, drinking far too much. Um, you know, so um, it's funny how things come around. Um and then I moved on doing management recruitment. Um, and then I moved into doing um, people manager in store. 
um, which was, oh my goodness, that was, um, I've got many, many stories, war stories I can tell you about that, but probably for another another podcast. <laughs> um, you know, what I did not learn about emergency incidents in store, I think in that, in that job is um, nobody's business. Um, but I think within all of that, you end up this huge resilience. Um, and I got to the point that, you know, I'd, I'd sort of moved up and moved up and moved up. Um, I'd done a stint in head office. And then I sort of went, you know what, I don't really want to go the general store management route. I don't want to go back to head office at that particular point in time. It didn't work for me personally. And so at that point, I then moved. I moved companies. Um, and I was so sorry to leave Asda. You know, if you'd have cut me in half at that point, I'd probably have Asda in the middle, you know, Asda. You know, um, <laughs> you know, I really, really did rate it as an organization. Um, and I moved then to um, Network Rail. Uh, well, actually, I moved to Rail Track two weeks later. It went bust. And I thought, great career move. Um, you know, but actually it worked out really well because um, I was working on a, a big project, the West Coast Upgrade Project, which was very varied experience working with lots of different consultancies, American consultants and a British rail culture. It was really you know, I learned loads from that organization. Um, very male dominated. And I, there was me as a, you know, a woman in that sort of environment, um, you know, but I learned how to make it all work, uh, which, which was fantastic. Did that for 18 months, moved to MFI, back to retail. Again, the area that I worked in was quite male dominated because I worked with tech um, and a lot of the corporate functions um, and new business. So um, a lot of um, men within that sort of tech environment doing a lot of major change, and then I finally ended up at Visa, which is where I was there for 12 years. Um, so that's a sort of very potted history sort of through my mm. career. I can obviously go into more depth and tell you all the stories <laughs> along the way. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious. I mean, it, were you ambitious from the start? Were you like, yes, I'm going to get promoted? Like, did you know, like, this is or how did it unfold for you? You know, I wouldn't have said I was ambitious from the start. It was not a word I would have used. It's probably still not a word that I would use, you know, when I even when I look back. Um, and for, so for many years, I probably wouldn't have said, no, I'm not ambitious. But I think as I've done more work and as I've become a coach and more self-aware and all of that sort of stuff, I think what I I've always strove for the next thing. Um, you know, I, I've always had a really strong work ethic. I think it's that, you know, going to work when you were 12 and learning how work worked, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and working hard. I've always wanted to be good at what I did, um, but I didn't equate that with ambition necessarily. I wanted to be really good at what I did because otherwise I'd be really embarrassed. But once I got good at what I did, I, there was always probably a bit more of a, rather than ambition, more of a bright, shiny object pulling me to the next thing and going, oh, what's that over there? Because I just get bored really quickly, to be honest. Once I'd got good at something, I'd go, okay, now what? Um, and I'd look around and go, what can I add? What can I do? Where's the next opportunity? Um, and although my career has actually been relatively linear when I look back on it, I don't think that was massively by um, driven by ambition I think it was more about the fact that actually I love variety I love doing new stuff where's the next bright shiny object and you know let me get good at that um I think that's probably more where it was but I think other people would look at that and go oh you must be really ambitious mm. um and and I think that's okay I'm okay with with that label and that tag um but I think it's quite nuanced um and I think it is for many women really you know I think it is quite nuanced really 
I think it totally is. And and just um, what was the last position you had at Visa? Because it was, you know, one that people would call whatever high up means, but it was it was one with a lot of responsibility, right? Yes. So I was um, I was HR director. So I I reported into the chief HR officer for Europe. Um, you know, I was one of the leadership team and sort of, you know, anointed number two, if it, if it were, you know, how it how it worked. Um, and I looked after sort of a, a wide sort of remit from all the hiring, all the firing. Um, I looked after all the employee relations. I even had HR systems, which I knew diddly squat about, but that's a whole other story. Um, no idea how I ended up with that one. Um, well, actually, I have, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> And um, I also had um, looked after the major change projects. So when we were doing mergers um, and at the, at the end, you know, when I, when I left Visa, we were doing a big merger with Visa Inc. So that was sort of my role to, to, to lead a big part of that um, when I was, you know, from an HR point of view. So that's really what I was doing um, when I was at Visa. And for many years, I had all the business partnership sort of stuff as well. Um, so my role evolved a lot over the years, um, but, you know, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think I think the key for me, I think the job titles sort of change a bit over the years. They don't the role doesn't. You know, the role just expands um, because that's really what I've been. That's what I've done all the way throughout my career. I've sort of just added bits on. I've gone, OK, now I've got that bit done. I'll just add something else on. What else is interesting? What else can I do? What else can I do? Um, just because of that boredom threshold I think um yeah. and that's definitely worked for me and that's now what I do actually with other clients I go well actually what else can you do that will give you that interest give you that um challenge that passion or whatever it might be so some clients that very much works really well for as a career strategy um, beautiful and as I was listening to you I was thinking okay so in your very last job the very senior one actually you know you were having to like you said fire people and hire people and it sounds like that's what you did in your first few years at, at Asta you know coming in like you said very green so not so different what did you learn about I think people are so nervous about having to tell someone hey you aren't good enough or even having to fire them but going through that process it's something that comes up in the coaching I do a lot about like oh this person isn't performing and how do I deal with it and what did you learn um, I think what I learned more than anything, and I think, you know, you just read LinkedIn now and, you know, it's pertinent. You see some of the posts around how people are fired um, and it just is horrifying. I think what I learned is you can be human about it. It's never going to be nice. It's not nice for anybody in the room. But look up, look at the person and be human about it, whether it's a pre you know, whether it's a disciplinary sort of conversation, whether it's a, you know, ultimate firing conversation, whether it's a redundancy conversation, be human about it and look up, look up from the script. You're not going to get it far wrong. Look up from the script, look at the person that you're talking to. Um, and I think you can be warm and tough at the same time. Um, and, and, I, and I learned that over the years. I think there's so many people that are, are, are too cold with it. Um, yeah. that's not their natural style it doesn't fit with them they're so nervous they're nervous of getting it wrong nervous of getting in litigation from a from an employer point of view that they are so impersonal I once had a client that said it's the it's the fact that it's impersonal that has made it so personal um yeah and you know she she really did mean that um because of how it had, how it had affected her um and so that's that's really what I learn about it and and as I got more 
senior in my career, you know, yes, I was responsible for those functions, but my job very much ended up being, you know, coaching other people to either have those conversations or if it was somebody very senior, I'd, I'd, I'd more get involved or if appeals and things like that have a little bit more direct um, intervention. But generally, and I would actually say this for not about necessarily firing, but when things go wrong in the corporate world, I often think it's because people have forgotten the human factor. Um, you know, they've just got a values clash and people get a little bit rigid on both sides. It's often, I've never met a time when it's 100% one person's complete fault. You know, however bad situations might have been, there's always a little bit of contributing factor, a different route that maybe could have been taken by both parties. Um, and remembering the human bit, I think, is key there. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we get along so well, because our <laughs> philosophy is so so similar, because the amount of people I've listened to that said, you know, you know, I was sort of OK with being fired, but it was how it was done. It was like I haven't worked here for 15 years or 10 years or, you know, all that I've given. And I was suddenly treated like I, I couldn't be trusted and I was just not all that I had given, like suddenly I'm suspicious and I'm weird and I'm going to what clean the hard drives or um, totally, I mean, the human piece. So it sounds like you learned it over the years. Do you think you had some of that naturally in you from the start, from having been in the, you know, working in the retail and being close to the customer? Did that help you bring that humanness in? Or is it who you are as a human? I think yes and. Yes, it is who I am as a human. However, I think in those very early days, and I'm talking the first 18 months when I was at Asda and having to, you know, in retail, you do have to, you know, the absence is heavily managed, you know, turnover is heavily managed, you know, that that you do have to dismiss, um, you're in the situation where you do dismiss people, um, or certainly you were way back in the day. Um, and I think for me, what I found in those early days is I was in so much fear of getting it wrong, saying the wrong thing, whatever, reading my script, that my natural empathy and warmth was dialed down because the fear sort of took over. And I so I can absolutely see why people end up in the way they are from the employer side of letting that fear bit run the show. I can absolutely see it. And that's where I think HR need to come in and really play a different role and going, there's an alternative way to do it. The end result might not be um, any different in terms of that person might then subsequently still leave However, how they feel about the organization, how they feel about their leader, you know, the reputation of their leader um, when they leave um, and, and what, how they go out into the world next will be hugely influenced by how they've been, you know, how it's been managed and how it's been dealt with. So, yes, I do think I had that as a natural piece, but it was hidden. And I think probably by the time I got to being people manager in um, a store in um, Birmingham, um, where it was there was so many emergency incidents. I, I I was in the situation where I did actually have to let go a lot of people in that first eighteen months, probably about one hundred and twenty or so, wow. um, for different <laughs> all range of issues. Um, you know, I think that allowed me to flex my muscles a little bit and sort of go, how do I want to be as I do this? Um, you know, and I remember distinctly, I'll always remember this. I remember once there was an incident where, you know, it was a health and safety incident. Um, and, you know, we had to let this lady go. And I remember she hugged me at the end. Wow. And I just went and, you know, she went, thank you for making it so 
um, not nice. That wasn't the word she used, but she just went, I think she just went, thank you for making it so. I don't actually think she finished her sentence. Um, and she just hugged me. And I just went, okay, look, there is an alternative way of doing this. And I'm not saying that's how you get with everybody, of course, there's a yeah. whole range of emotions going. But how do I want to be in this? I think it's so important. Yes, I guess this woman knew she'd made a mistake. And instead of being vilified for it, you yeah. did what needed to be done, but in a in a compassionate and human yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes. Um, so learnt lots. Um, I'll look back at my time as a huge, not a lot phased me after doing some of those roles, I can tell you. And, and, and it's interesting. Any graduate will say exactly the same that's gone uh, through those sorts of programs. Yeah. Amazing um, experience. I'm curious. I mean, I could just dive into that, but I'm really curious because we have talked a lot about politics because politics comes up and not the politics of of people that have the title politician, but politics and organizations, because it's one of those arguments that men, but particularly women I coach, will very often use as a reason for why they will not opt for a bigger role and they'll go well I don't want to deal with the politics and I can't handle the politics and Mm. and what they're often saying is like oh it feels like I have to be out of integrity or I have to be sleazy or I have to step on someone's toes or I have to be fake or I have to and I know I don't actually even know how you figured it out but I know you you always say like okay well I figured out the politics so I found a way and you don't have to be out of integrity. And and I'm so curious, like, at what point did you even notice there was politics? Because it sounds like in the early days, it didn't seem like there was politics. At what point did politics start playing a role? And and how did you, yeah, how yeah. did you deal with that? Um, you know, it's interesting. I run, I run this um, workshop sometimes and it's, um, what's it called? Oh, 10 mistakes people make in mid-career. And I think there's this one that really resonates with a lot of people where they sort of go, um it is it is very much about the politics um and I think for me looking back there was a definite shift because in my 20s yeah pretty much through my 20s it was all about being good at task um being good at what I had to deliver whether that was you know recruiting people whether it was actually filling the shelves whether it was you know, available, ordering the right amount of stock, whatever it was, it was about being good at the task. And then, and and I did learn this being good at relationships piece as as a manager. But I think as I got more senior and got into other organizations, I was aware that politics went on. But because I was still relatively junior in the big scheme of things, I was able to be exactly like I hear many clients and sounds like you do too, I'm not going to play politics. I'm just going to avoid it. I'm going to rise above it. I know it goes on, but I'm going to leave it over there. You know, there's this all, that was absolutely where I was. Um, And I was in that definite, almost righteous bit of, I'm going to rise above it. I'm, I'm, you know, not quite better than them, but, you know, that's not for me. There was a definite righteousness in it. And I think the shift for me came hadn't long been at Visa and I remember distinctly one day running in a day of back-to-back meetings and we had the HR leadership meeting and I was running a million miles an hour and I grabbed this whole pile of papers probably you know gosh you know I don't know 20 centimeters 30 centimeters thick you know ruler length you know of papers and ran into the meeting and and it was quite an operational meeting we went through all the operational stuff and then we went through some strategic stuff Hence all the papers. Um, and I remember walking in going, oh, 
you know, bit out of breath going, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't read them all. Um, and, And the meeting just moved on. And actually, it made very little difference that I hadn't read them all because I was able to think on my feet, give an opinion, say what needed to be said. And my boss called me back afterwards and he went, do you think everybody else had read those papers? And I went, oh, yeah, of course. And he went, they hadn't. And then he said, being honest does not mean that you have to tell everybody everything. And I just went, what? (laughs) And it completely blew my mind. I was like, well, honesty is really important to me. It's one of my core values. And he went, it does not mean you have to tell everybody everything. And I went, oh. And that was when I really went, okay, hold on a minute. This offers politics thing. Because then he went on to tell me I needed to be a lot better at it because he said I was pretty rubbish. Um, And and I went, oh, I hadn't even, it hadn't even occurred to me. Um, And he sent me off to Cranfield University to do a couple of exec programs on um, something called Centaur Leadership, which I could wax lyrical for hours, but I won't take us down that rabbit hole. Um, And my wonderful wise mentor, even today, Sandy Cotter, also did a module in this exec program um, on office politics. It transformed my thinking. It absolutely transformed my thinking. Because what she talks about, and I know I'm one of her coaches, I now do this with my clients, is, you know, if good people who have the good of organisations do not involve themselves in politics, who does? It's all the other so-and-sos that are just out for themselves that are doing it. Um, You know, and so actually good people have a moral obligation to involve themselves in politics so they can influence for the greater good and hopefully get into positions of power where actually they can then create more, less, or not not more, but less political environments where it is about merit, it is about, you know, doing the right thing, it is about something bigger than yourself. And and my sort of worldview, if you like, my corporate worldview changed at that point, and I went, wow. But you would think I went back into the office, wouldn't you, and go, right, now I'm going to change. But I didn't. <laughs> I was still going, okay, I get it. But I'm still not going to change. I'm still not going to change the way that I do things. I'm still going to rise above it and whatever. And it took probably about a year, I reckon, for me to actually start making some shifts. And how I started, I remember I had a spreadsheet because I was sort of, you know, wanted to be organized and strategic about it. I remember and I had a bit of a spreadsheet around actually, who did I want to start building more relationships with? Who do I want to start influencing? Who do I want to, where do I want to start making a bigger difference? Um, And I laugh now at that sort of, you know, 30 year old, young 30 year old something, um, you know, who had it written down in the spreadsheet. But it gave me a bit of structure. It gave me a bit of an order to strategically think about how I could do things differently. Um, And my career started to go great guns because I was having different conversations using language that lands with people um, and getting different results. And I was able to start um, influencing for that greater good I was able to start having a bigger impact in the organization um and 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 make better yeah make better things happen so yes that was my intro if you like into office politics (laughs) so many questions (laughs) (laughs) and first off I just wonder whether you can demystify for us what is politics because I think people mean different things when they say that so when it comes to organizational life what even is politics what do you how do you see it yeah. So I think I think what people see and what people traditionally see and what I certainly did, it was Machia- all Machiavellian. You know, it was all the backstabbing, gossip, 
um, you know, undermining, stealing people's work. It was all of that nasty, toxic stuff that goes on. And by the way, I'm not suggesting for a moment that good people start doing any of that stuff, you know. Um, however, what I do see is I see that we need more good people to be able to take a strategic look at what's going on. So they really read the room, they read the situation, they can see the people and the players that are doing that. And then they can start to say, how do I influence this situation with integrity for that greater good, for the good of others and for the good of the organization? How do I have conversations with those people? Because wherever you're gonna get a certain size of organization, you're going to get politics because people are people and you're going to get people that are just out for themselves first. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't do the right thing for organizations, but it just tends to mean that they will look at the world through their lens first. Um, and so I think for me, it's about then reading the situation, reading the players, reading the room and going, how do I have conversations to influence the greater good but doing it with integrity because otherwise all bets are off you know um, so you kind of I mean so you're basically saying you can't be naive about it like you do have to be deliberate about it and put some thought into it if you want to influence and if you want to change things for the greater good uh, then you've got to step up and dare to be deliberate about certain conversations that are had with certain people and and yeah, give it some yeah. thought, let bigger, what is this for? Absolutely, you know, and, and if you think about, if you look around, if you're sitting in an organization now, look around, you know, you probably know, you know, there's a model that I work with, you know, that talks about different different character types. You probably know um, what this model talks about as being wise owls, you know, in the organization. People that have been around, that understand how things go. People that are wise and trusted and have good heart you probably recognize those people in your organizations. And what we almost need is we need people that are going, you know, and those people can generally play the politics, but they do it with good intent. They do it to make a better difference and they can navigate things. They can read what's going on. They have the right conversation with the right person at the right time to influence things um, for that greater good. Um, and, what I'm saying is we need more good people to step up and be prepared to be like those people. Because mm. if those people can get into positions of power and leadership roles, you know, then actually they can make a change. They, we get critical mass if we get enough of them, you know, where they can actually start to really change the way that things happen in organizations. Um, I'm on my soapbox now. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And and I and so many are, are longing for role models, right? I mean, we're longing for role models. I, I created a whole course on role model your own way because people are going like, but I don't see anyone doing it in a way that feels good to me. Because you're saying, look at those people that do it well, those wise owls. But it's like many, many clients I have definitely go, I, I don't see anyone that I would want to be like. Yeah, you know, and, and, and by the way, if you haven't done that course of me, do it. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that that is so important. And that's what made the big shift for me, because I think around the same time that I, you know, going off and doing that program with Sandy, it that was my entry into all the personal development stuff. Um, and, you know, my mind was blown with the whole, whole thing. I went, wow, OK, I'm really limiting. It wasn't just about politics, but, you know, I'm really, you know, because I, I I was operating the way I was and being really good at task, but not 
letting myself set forwards into that full power, if you like, I was really limiting myself, but also limiting the impact that I could have. Um, and, you know, in the organization and for others. So what I really learned was take the mask off. I remember walking through, you know, big glossy offices, you know, in, in different organizations, actually, you know, walking through those doors and going, right, got my game face on, you know, right, this is me now, you know, all professional. But actually, when I took that mask off, you know, I had, um, there's a whole story around, you know, I had a big blazing row with my then client, um, you know, because I was trying to, you know, talk to him about some HR nonsense program or something we were trying to do. Um, and I didn't really believe in it. You know, I didn't really believe in it, but I was going through the motions, putting my game face on, doing what I thought needed to be done. And I remember thinking, this isn't really working for me. And it wasn't working for him either. So the, we had, after rather a sweary meeting from both of us, I might add, we actually had a big bust up and it, I, I then decided, right, I'm going to change the way I do this. I'm going to try and do this differently. And I gave myself about six months to persuade my boss to restructure the team, restructure what we were doing, um, less of the HR nonsense, more of the stuff that would really make a difference and that the business really wanted. Um, and I gave myself six months and I thought, right, if I can't make it work here in six months, I'll leave. Um, and because what I realized is even if I'd left sooner, I'd, I'd just be moving to the same HR nonsense somewhere else in another organization, probably. So I, I decided, no, I'm going to make a difference. And it was at that point, I persuaded my boss and I did exactly what I said. It actually took four months. I'd give myself six, but it took four. Um, I was promoted. And, and it's important to say, actually, I wanted him to make these changes, even if it wasn't going to be me that got that big job. It was so important that that, that we made these changes. Um, but I did get that job um, and things and things moved on. And that person that I had the, the big bust up with was became my biggest sponsor. My boss wow. was always uber supportive. Um, and, you know, I think deciding to be me, deciding to take the mask off, deciding to say, actually, I don't think this is right. We ought to be doing this and showing up at work as me and using the stuff that I was naturally really good at, the empathy, that warmth, that stuff that we were talking about in how I do business. Um, that made the biggest difference, I think. So that and the politics, you know, that they're, they're, they're the um, big pieces, I think, that made the big difference. What did you have to, I don't know, tell yourself or what kind of strengths did you have to pull on? Because to give up the mask and to give up that professionalism and that'll show up in the right way and to just go, well, I'll just, I'll just be me and I'll have empathy and I'll be nice and I'll like weren't you afraid like how did you manage like was it really that bit of like okay this isn't working I I'm okay getting fired I'm okay if it, like I want to be me and then I'm okay with the potential bad consequences so how did you manage to to navigate that inside well I remember I mean I had actually um I'd been for other roles um you know when I joined the <laughs> I always told my boss this. I spent the first 18 months looking to leave Visa when I joined um, because, um, you know, it's a brilliant brand, passionate people about what they did. Um, but it was much more political than I was used to. Um, and it also felt very slow compared to retail, you know, decision making, all of this sort of stuff. And I was like, I'm not really sure this is for me. Um, but actually, it was when I realized, first of all, I could go and get another job doing what I was doing now in a, another place, a bank or wherever I wanted to go. Um but it was when I realized I would just be moving for the same stuff 
And I thought, mm, okay, I really like this organization. I like the passion that people have about it. I like all of these things. Let me see if I can make a change here. And I think because I was prepared to walk away, you know, I didn't, ha- you know, and there were opportunities out there that I thought I could get. Um, that didn't feel such a big risk. I think because I had this client who, you know, I at the, at the heart of it after this bust up, I knew we'd had a meeting of minds. Um, and I think therefore that felt supportive that actually if I can make this change, he was going to support that. Um, and, I, and actually what I started to realise is that's probably unintentionally the building of starting to play the political game. Because so I started to go, okay, who are my sponsors? Who can I rely on? Who are in positions of power that can help me? How do I frame things? How do I start to have conversations where I can influence, but with integrity? Because I was, as I say, I genuinely thought the changes that we wanted to make from a structural point of view, from a focus point of view, were the right things. And I was prepared. I thought that even if I didn't get a role in within it. Um, so it was absolutely the right thing, you know, for the organization to be doing, I felt. Um, and and so how did I how did I do that? I think I just decided. And I just thought, you know, there's so much effort that goes into being somebody that I'm not. And I think it was interesting when you said, you know, you know, lead, you know, leading a something like leading with empathy and being nice. I think I did lead with empathy. I don't think that necessarily equates to always being nice. Um, you know, because I was pretty commercial, you know, I'd, you know, had that really good commercial grounding in Asda and I was really quite savvy and straight talking. And so that blend allowed a different me to come out. It wasn't the, okay, let me just be nice. I don't think it would have worked if that had been the case because that wasn't me. Um, I am very nice, by the way. But um, <laughs> yes, you are. But oh, did you have a deep nice. voice? You do yeah. have a you have a deeper voice, and you do have. I've always thought since I've met you, and and I wonder maybe you have that from from you were twelve. This sort of a confidence when you when you speak when you when it's a topic you know something about. You have a very grounded, calm way of talking about it, and then you definitely have, which a lot of women have played with. How do I drop my voice? Which I mean, it's sad that that is the case, but isn't it? But that people hear it differently. So yeah. I wonder whether that's one of your things that you had naturally in the baggage. You know, I think it comes back to. I work with this other model around energy, and you know, a lot of the time. If I'm, I, I I can have a bit of a natural fright gene going on. You know, I can get very nervous very quickly, especially if I feel out of my depth or I don't know what I'm talking about or I feel put on the spot. Um, I can, or, I, or something about something doesn't feel safe. I can absolutely go to that fear place. Um, and I think, and I think that's what I saw in my early career. You know, when I was going for those HR interviews that I remember talking about, you know, right at the beginning of this podcast, you know, and I wasn't getting them because I was probably talking like this, you know, and I was, I was really, I was genuinely terrified and anxious. <laughs> um, you know, I was shaking. I was shaking like a leaf. No wonder I didn't get them. I wouldn't have hired me, um, you know, but it's because I really didn't know what it, what I was asking for. You know, I, it, it wasn't my um, expertise. I, I did feel out of my depth. And I think I, having that, confidence I think comes with experience but it also I think as a coach we learn a different um, way of listening we learn a different presence we learn 
you know, to manage your emotions and manage yourself and be in the moment. And, and I remember when I um, started my business and that's obviously where I met you and, um, you know, in, in a, in a, in a sort of mastermind we were doing together. And I remember you said, when you go into HR, HRD mode, my God, you're a different person than this, oh, starting something new and all and bubbly and exciting. You know, I'm a very, it, it, the energy around it feels very different. Um, and so I think as a, as, as anyone, I, I don't think it's just a female thing, but especially for women, I think being aware of the energy you show up with and tapping into the energy and almost just calming it down being more in the room, being more present. That is absolutely key. And that is the thing, you know, I think energy, you know, throughout my career is probably one of the things that helped me along the way, you know, because mm. people do a lot for enthusiasm. You know, if you bowl people over with enthusiasm and energy and excitement, people, people want to play. Energy is infectious, you yeah. know? Um, so, but it sounds like it was grounded. So, I mean, what I'm what I'm hearing, and actually, what I'm, uh, people listening won't see you, but I'm I'm watching you also, and how how different it shows up, and and both your voice changes, your energy changes. It's like it's excitement that's grounded into the feet. I think we can be um, all of us, sort of, you know, having excitement where we're like up in the clouds, and that is harder, I think, to receive. Whereas what you're talking about is here actually. I'm okay with worst case scenario. I've made peace with maybe I won't have a job here in the future. I totally believe in what I'm up to, the course I'm going for, what this is for. I have a little bit of a plan. I kind of, you know, feel like I know who I'm talking to, what I'm talking to them about. And 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 I'm I'm gonna be me. I'm not gonna pretend I'm gonna speak truth. But it came from a very grounded place. And I think maybe more than and it was like a little bit of a red herring, that bit of like, because I think people go, well, my voice is not like this. So if I'd looked like that or if I was blah, 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 then I'd be taken more serious. But like you said, it was the the way you grounded yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is, it's dialing down the fear and ideally dissolving it because I think, and I, I loved how you said that, what I wanted was that, you know, was so much stronger than the fear in that moment. And I think if I look at the sort of, you know, different um, points in my career, when 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 things have felt hard or, you know, a bit scary, it's been the thing that I really want has felt stronger. That's really made the decision to to do something different, to, to tap into that courage, if you like. Um, so, yes, I'm a big fan of energy and showing up using the energy that you actually want to put out there. Um, beautiful I mean we can't end this interview without talking about uh money and pay rises because I know this is one of your (laughs) things that you are super skilled at coaching your clients around but also you somehow I don't know is it fair to say hack the system on how to to keep doubling your pay or getting pay rises or what's the trick because so many women are really bad at getting pay rises and negotiating pay I I know this is probably something we could you could do and I don't know you teach on it for hours but if there was something you learned and that you could pass on like what do we do how do we get better pay you know it's it's funny because um I you know I I it wasn't until I was probably, you know, gosh, probably late thirties that I did any formal negotiation training. I remember, you know, in my, um, you know, um, 
annual performance review and saying what you want to work on. It was always, I want to be more strategic. I want to be more commercial. I want to be get better at influencing negotiation. They were always the big three that I'd, I'd, I'd put on there every year. Um, but I think when I left, when I left Visa and I remember writing my blurb on my website about me, um and you know with the help of a wise mentor who was you know had experienced at setting up a website you know I remember her, her asking around that well what, what was the impact of my pay you know over the years and I realized I doubled my pay every five years from when I was a graduate I doubled my pay every five years um and I went and that's just what I did it didn't feel a big thing and then I was looking at numbers and going oh, okay that that did get quite big actually um and I think for me I told you I got my first pay rise when I was 13 um, I asked for my per- first pay rise, asked for it. And I was given that one when I was 15, uh, 16, sorry. No, 15. I was 15. Um, and the reason that I asked for that pay rise, because it's important, and I'll tell you this story because it is important, I think, to to what you look around at. I worked in a, in a, in a butcher's and delicatessen shop, really fancy shop in Oxfordshire. Um, the, the guy that owned it was amazing. I learned so much in that butcher shop, I tell you. Um, but I looked around and I was earning £2.20 an hour. So this is back in the late 80s, I think, showing my age now. Um, and the other ladies that were working in the shop got paid £4 an hour. And I looked around and I, I was like, hmm, I'm doing as much as they are, if not more. You know, customers, I had a way with customers. They liked me. Um, I looked around for stuff to do all the time. I, you know, because of my boredom thing, I'd be reorganizing, getting involved in stuff. Um, you know, I'd work 14 hour days when I needed to at Christmas, you know, um, I would be going above and beyond. Um, and I thought I, I, I deserve this four pounds. And I remember terrified, see the fear comes out again and just notice that it's quite normal to have the fear, but almost do, you know, that great book, feel the fear and do it anyway. You know, I was remember being terrified, but asking, you know, my boss for that pay rise to be paid the same because it felt the right thing to do. It felt fair. But also I could look at that and say, I'm playing my part. I'm playing my part. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, a wish list. It wasn't just, um, uh, oh, well, I'd, it'd be nice to have. It wasn't just, I could get that if I go across the road. Well, yeah, you can always get something if you go across the road and get a job somewhere else. You know, it was actually, I could back it up with evidence. And I think that's the key thing that then happened throughout my career. I think the other thing which I did, which I always encourage many people to do, is look at the thing, which which I actually use probably five times in my career, sometimes directly about pay. And sometimes it was maybe about development, getting some funding for development, whether it's my career coaching that I wanted to do or whether it was my CIPD qualification or my MSc or or whatever. Um, And what I did is I looked around and so I knew I was good at my job. And I looked around and went, what needs to be done? What's going to add value? And what does nobody else want to do? Um, and then I'd offer to do that if they would give me X, Y, Z, whatever it was. Um, and and that worked brilliantly because, first of all, I got something new to do that was interesting and challenging. Um it wasn't always the thing that was exciting, by the way. Sometimes it was like, oh, a real poison chalice, you know, that I'd put my hand up and go, I, I'll do it. But I, I would do it if um, if I could, you know, get a pay rise or a review or a bit of development or whatever. And I'd just negotiate that. Um, so I, 
I think finding the win-win, the win for you, what do you get out of it? And the win for the organization and making sure you have the conversation with the right person. Um, so that are my, they're my big tips around, around um, um, getting, well, pay rise and investment, I guess, in, in, in development. Um, I think often with pay rises, it's a lot about understanding where the organization's coming from. So if you're in a, you know, I've worked for organizations that don't have a lot of money or that, you know, I remember when I was at Asda, you know, you couldn't even get a pen. You had to go and buy it off the shop floor. You know, you looked in the stationery cupboard, there was nothing. You know, I remember going to Visa, looking in the stationery cupboard, going, wow, there's post-it notes. There's all this, there's Tipex, there's all this stuff. <laughs> very exciting um you know um but to be realistic about the sort of organization you're working for and then be flexible about what you're asking so it might be about salary it might be a one-off bonus if you save the company money it might be about actually a development which often comes from different budgets so you know be flexible about what you're asking for as well um you know and i always believe in the power of three have three things ask for you might ask for a pay rise um, if they say no, you might ask for a bonus. And if they say no, you might ask for a bit of development. Um, people don't like to say no three times. Um, so, you know, try different things. But um, yeah, maybe I need to write a whole thing on pay rises. Um. <laughs> I think that would be great. <laughs> I mean, it's such, such an important topic. And it makes us resentful when we're like, I should be paid more. I'm doing all this much and I should be paid more. And then people get really sour and resentful. And it's, it's not... I mean, it is about the money, but it that's not the biggest mm -hmm. deal. The biggest deal is never about the money. It's like yeah. that bit of feeling appreciated. But what I'm really hearing you say is like, be proactive about it. Don't wait. And I've heard that in other interviews I've done already. They're saying like the men will go and ask and they'll ask and maybe they get no, but they keep asking and mm -hmm. they keep asking. And like you said, people don't like you keep saying no. And if you ask more times than others, you're I mean, I can see that even just with my kids. Mm -hmm. If they keep asking for the same thing, like in day five, you're like, okay, well, we'll make a plan for you to mm. get this thing, try that thing, have that chocolate, whatever. And maybe not today, but it's like, there's a limit to how many times we say no to something. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. What I would say though, is try and make your organization feel good about giving it to you. You know, solving a problem that they cannot solve or cannot fix, you know? So when I was, um, you know, I, I said, go back to my Asda days, when I was um, looking to do... Um, one of these people managers in stores, you know, everybody would say, you'll get one of those nice first appointment stores, you know, not a lot goes wrong. You can figure out what you're doing. You know, the role they couldn't fill was in Birmingham, you know, with all of these emergency incidents going on, that was the role that they couldn't fill because nobody would go there. Um, well, okay. So I remember my, you know, regional boss at the time said, if you, if, will you go there? And I went, oh, I will go there. But look, this is actually what I really want to do. I really want to do have time to be able to do my CIPD and, you know, and I found this course and whatever. And he went, all right, I'll fund the course if you go and do that. And I went, OK, <laughs> I'll go do that. Um, and you have to give me a pay rise for doing it because it's a big store and da, da, da. you know, and so it allows you. So, so make them feel good about it, because if you sort of just sort of almost, you know, hassle your boss into submission, yeah. they're never going to feel good about it. And also you won't eat either because you'll just be going into frustration. So be flexible in your approach about why they should give you a pay rise. That's what I would say.
But that also means we have to be proactive because a lot of a lot of women, it's like, okay, but the last 10 years, I've just said yes, yes, yes. And I didn't ask for anything. And so now I'm way overdue. So it's that bit of like, try and be proactive about it when you're asked to do something going yes. And yeah, yeah. Or, you know, be be more purposeful about you rather than just saying yes. You go, actually, this needs to be done over here. And here's why, you know, build the business case for that, because that's probably more important than the 10 other things you're being asked to do. Um, you know, so and I think that's the problem is that people end up do they do just say yes to everything. Um, and they're saying yes, then people just sort of automatically feel that's part of their job. Whereas actually, if they can create something over here, that's going to add a value in a different way, then that's maybe more important. I don't know if you want me to expand on what sorts of things I mean. But you know, going to a store that nobody wants to go to is a good example. Um, what were other things I did? Oh, I did. Um, I did um, management recruitment. You know, I, I took on a challenge to find, you know, 100 managers in 90 days, 108 managers in 90 days. Nobody thought we could we could do it, but I really wanted to go and be that people manager. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do that so that you give me this. And if I do, will you give me this? Um, I took on recruitment. You know, I knew nothing about recruitment, particularly at that point. I took on recruitment. Nobody really wanted to do it. But I said, well, if you give me that, and if I save some money, will you give me a one-off bonus or whatever? of this because I needed that money to go on holiday or do something that I wanted to do. <laughs> Love um, negotiating. And it, and it worked, you know, but it also gave me something and it was a bit more on my terms, which starts to dial down the frustration of just saying yes to everybody and feeling like yeah. you're just jumping through hoops. It's a bit more on your terms. So absolutely be proactive and go, what, 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 how could you do it on your terms a little bit more? Um, yeah. love that oh I'd love to just keep talking about that <laughs> we are towards the end of our time and um have one final question before we get to the final question if people want more Nicola if they're like help I want <laughs> I want your help with with getting pay rises or anything else what's the best way for them to connect with you to find you um you can find me on um people hyphen savvy savvy.com um and my sort of different ways of working with me um are there i have a sort of range of you know toolkits and you know i run a career membership um and also you can work one-to-one with me on there as well um but yes lots of different things for all different price points so thank you yeah definitely check out nicola and i know i mean she has so many hidden gems so her one-to-one services are of course amazing but also like i know you have for anyone in the uk that where the organization might be looking to make you redundant or something like going on nicola knows the stuff because she's done the hr side and the coaching so you get both sides which is so i mean it's so valuable it'll save you money and make you money very likely also so <laughs> really really good to both be looked after emotionally and financially so definitely we'll we'll put the link we'll put the link in as as a final thing and i mean you could probably talk for an hour about this question but i'd love to know what advice would you give to any woman who's like okay you know i want to do more leadership or want to be more successful but i want to do it on my terms like what maybe it's like what advice would you give or what is the the mistake you see happening because I know you have been around you've seen many many women succeed both while you were in corporate and now on the other side being the coach what's the what's the one two three pieces of advice that you wish women knew to really take in I think I mean the big one I talk about all the time is stop waiting for someone to tap you on the shoulder and tell you you're ready yeah. If you're sensing that you're in, you're frustrated with something or you're worried about something happening, just do something, you know, 
do something and 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 be that proactive sort of space um and i think whatever you do you know sometimes i'm a huge overthinker and what really helps me is going back to and spending a bit of time if you haven't ever done it by the way spend a bit of time doing this um and then you can go back to your values what's really important to you and using that to guide what you do but also how you do it and you can use that to tell you know others who you are you know i often say you know freedom is my number one value it's really important to me that guides everything about how i work with clients for instance you know honesty is really important to me that's why i'll always you know tell you the truth for instance maybe not all of the truth because i've learned politics but <laughs> <laughs> you know but it is it is key to keeping your integrity intact doing it in a way that doing it your way um and I think this is a piece of advice that I've borrowed from another coach whose name I cannot remember, so I cannot give them credit. Sam something. Um, and it's okay that not everybody likes you. And as a you know reformed people pleaser, do Numi's course on this, by the way. Um, you know, she said to me and and to the whole room of people that she was chatting to, she said, "Look, twenty percent of people aren't are going to love you. They're going to absolutely think you're brilliant." 20% of people will hate you and just go, oh, really can't be bothered with them or they irritate me or whatever. And the other 60% aren't thinking about you at all. They're thinking about what they're going to have for dinner or something completely equally irrelevant to you, not even thinking about you. And so I think that also um, helps when you put yourself under pressure to, to be perfect or fit in or do things in a certain way. Um, so they're my sort of three bits of advice, I'd say. Um, love that I've never heard anyone give that statistic but it's so like okay well 20% just yeah. won't like you like just get over yeah. it yeah. Just, <laughs> don't give it your energy to that don't give it's none your of your business they are yeah. allowed to to you know dislike you for whatever reason <laughs> they will make up in their head yeah. <laughs> brilliant 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 I really heard the theme of you know don't wait don't wait to be tapped mm. be proactive I mean that's clearly what's gotten you to places all the way through and we didn't even talk about how you managed your own exit and how you you crafted <laughs> your your coaching chapter <laughs> podcast number two coming soon <laughs> part two absolutely thank you so oh, much I really you. enjoyed this conversation Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. And I would love it if you would rate and review the show as it really does help other women to find it more easily. Remember, no matter what's going on around you, it only takes a single breath to start grounding back into your power. So let's take a breath. Feel your power. And go spread the magic.